Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Bren McLean, the author of One Good Mama Bone, set in rural South Carolina toward the end of World War II and in the early 1950s. Sarah Creamer's mother never minced words. She wanted a son, not a daughter, especially a daughter neither pretty nor slim. She did all she could to undermine Sarah's confidence, at one point announcing, You ain't got one good mama bone in you, girl. So when, years later, Sarah becomes a single parent to a child not her own, is it any wonder she believes she doesn't have what it takes to raise her newfound son? Enter Mama Red, a cow who, following her calf, appears uninvited in Sarah's yard one day. As Sarah helps her son take care of these two animals, she discovers that nature may just have given her a mama bone after all. But none of that will happen if Sarah refuses her first challenge. June twenty second, 1944. One night, deep into it, when sounds are prone to carry, a baby boy lies crying on Sarah Creamer's kitchen table. He is minutes old, still wet with his mother's blood, and hungry for his mother's milk. But she does not hear his cries. She is no longer there. Only Sarah, only Sarah remains. Her body bent over his, her hands rummaging the wooden planks for a towel still white enough to wrap him in. Blood is everywhere, puddled up as if there had been a hard rain. The smell of it saturates the 81-degree air, pushes aside the dry tang of bleach, and fills the heat with the moistness of a long-shuttered earth, now free. The baby's cries penetrate Sarah's bosom and bounce around its emptiness. Her hands are shaking. A lone light bulb hangs suspended over the table, a pull string running from the base of the bulb. It hangs as still as death. The light casts Sarah larger than she knows herself to be, beginning on the far wall above her husband, Harold, who lies drunk and passed out in front of the open doorway to the porch. Sarah spreads high and wide. And now, please join me in welcoming Bren McLean. Hi, Bren. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Hey, listen, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Uh, this is such a beautiful book, and I'm really looking forward to learning more about you and your story world. Oh, I uh, can't wait to talk about it, so thank you. So let me start, as I always do, by asking about you. Uh, in this case, your past is particularly relevant. You grew up on a farm in Anderson, South Carolina, where you set this book. And I've seen on your website that getting from experience to publication took quite a while, several decades, in fact. <laughs> So tell yes. us the real-life background of One Good Mama Bone and how you went from Bee Farmer's Daughter to published novelist. I'll be happy to, and I'll just start by saying I'm a 27-year overnight success. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's been a long, long road, but oh so worth it. I, uh, When I was three years old, I began refusing any article of clothing unless it had a pocket in it. And what I did was stuff paper and pencil. Mom said that she kept me still in church writing in an old S&H green stamp book. So my early days, I was already knowing in my soul that I 
was a writer. So uh, wrote a wrote a play that the school performed in the fourth grade, a novel in the fifth grade, got into boys, wrote love poetry, went to college, studied English, became a journalist. And so there I put into practice my writing. But it wasn't until I was around 30 years old when I began working in corporate America when I was bored out of my mind that I picked up a notepad and began writing fiction. So fast forward through those 27 years, three novels, got an agent with the first one, but we didn't sell it, wrote a second novel. It was a failed novel, I have to say. My mom was dying during that time. The book was a mess. I was a mess, blah, blah. I didn't know what to do to fix it. I researched another one. And then here we are with One Good Mama Bone in 2008 is when I was at my farm back here visiting my family in the midst of a, a weaning when babies are taken from their mothers, mother cows, and uh, their sounds in the night woke me up. And I went outside five in the morning and saw huddled these mama cows in the corner of the fence calling woefully, gutturally for their babies as the babies were for them. And I knew then I had the missing piece for the second novel that was failed. And so I got busy writing that, and here we go. Um, that's One Good Mama Bone, and it's the reason we're talking today. Oh, so this was the second novel, So even though you, you wrote three, but this this was a repeat of uh, a rewrite of the second novel, basically. Right, right. Uh, what I did, Carolyn, is throw out 95% of it. Painful, gosh, painful. But I did, threw it out kept uh, just a little germ that had kicked off the story originally, a little 5% germ, and then totally rewrote it with uh, this uh, mother cow component in it as the centerpiece and as the teacher. That's really interesting to me because that exactly happened to me with my second novel, too. I had written it back in 1998, I think, and I knew it wasn't working and I couldn't figure out why, and it was back. And I, I was actually in 2008, I went back to it. I suddenly figured out what I needed to do and, you know. And ah, the same year, the same year that it happened for me, 2008. Oh, isn't that fascinating? <laughs> that is fascinating. Yeah, but, you know, as writers, that's what we have to do. We have to keep going until we get it mm-hmm. to work. And like you, and I so, think there's yeah. one scene, and even that one's been rewritten, that is actually <laughs> left over from that initial novel. But, yeah, it's it's fascinating how it works. It is fascinating. So that's how uh, this farmer's daughter, uh, isn't it interesting, though, that uh, I left the farm and did all these other kinds of things, and it was ultimately coming back to the farm that I found what I needed, and that's what has helped me get published. It's interesting. I came back home for that. Yeah, that is interesting. So along the Mm -hmm. way, you worked in media, radio, and television, and you're still working in communications. Um, does that help develop your writing style, or does it have really no connection? You know what? There is a connection, but not direct. I would call it indirect. I, If I were to sit and work on my writing 24-7, you know, if I didn't have another job, eh, you know, or if I worked in, in that uh, consulting business all the time, I'd just be dead. And what I think it gives me is a great balance, because as you well know, writing is is a solitude adventure. 
Uh, and so that's wonderful. I've, I get out and, and all over the country and travel and do my consulting stuff and <laughs> just get my fill of people and eating out in restaurants and all this kind of stuff. And I do that maybe a week or two a month. And then the other cool thing is then that gives me two or three weeks a month to go back home and to get that solitude life and just kind of, you know, do what I need to do to write. So I think it gives me a great balance. The other thing it's given me, because I've worked with people all over the country, is, wow, a great reading audience, people that I know and are eager to get, well, maybe I'm stretching it with eager, <laughs> but are on the lookout for this novel. I've met so many people, so I think it's expanded my readership. So for me, it's really it's really been a good thing, not to mention that's you know, paid the bills while I have uh, sat in solitude and, and written. So how did you discover Story River Books? Wow, that's a great story. Story River Books. So I did the, the route most writers do, which is try and get an agent and try and be published in New York and everyone's dream and this, that, and the other. And Carolyn, you know what? It just wasn't really happening for me. I got some, you know, nice rejections from agents, et cetera, but... I could, I began to see in 2013, hey, Brand, you know, I don't know about this. Well, around that time, I went to a class with a major, major literary agent, a New York agent, who kind of gave, wanted to talk about the literary landscape at the time. And her message was, well, you know, unless you are a sure thing, you know, New York will have a hard time looking at you. If you, you know, I write literary fiction. So literary fiction, Southern literary writer, she said, you know, eh, it's not looking so good. But good news is small presses are rising up to fill that void that New York is making. And so I remember Carolyn, when she said that, I went, hmm, I felt some energy surge through my body. So I went and talked to her afterwards and said, like, what? You know, give me some recommendations. Well, she happened to be uh, the literary agent for Pat Conroy, the famous writer Pat Conroy. And she said, well, you know, Pat has started his own imprint, Story River Books, and then she listed a couple more. Well, the next month, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, at a, a writing gathering, and this gentleman comes up to me and introduces himself, and he happens to be Jonathan Haupt who is the, who at that time uh, ran the University of South Carolina Press. And so I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't you administering Pat Conroy's Story River Books? And he said, I am. And I said, you know, Jonathan, I've got a novel. May I tell you about it? <laughs> and so I did. And he reached in his pocket, gave me his card and said, send it to me. Wow. And I did. I did. And when I hit sand on my computer, I had a knowing in me that said, you are stepping in to what's been set up for you. And I knew that was going to be the ticket. And it turned out to be the case. But I knew it in my soul. And so it was a perfect match. And to think that Pat Conroy not only read my novel, but wanted to publish my novel is one of my pinnacle moments in my life. I, I just uh, I was able to meet him before he died. He, he passed away last March, and thank him. And he didn't remember my name, but he said, "Wait a minute, tell me the name of your novel." And I said, "One Good Mama Bone." Oh my gosh! He long opened his arms and screamed, "The cow!" <laughs> <laughs> and of course, tears in my eyes. I said, "Yes, the cow!" 
So here we are back home on the farm again. You know, look at that. Little three-year-old girl. So I've had an extraordinary experience, and it was the exact right home for me um, in, my, in my story. That is a wonderful story. So that brings us to the cow. <laughs> the cow. Oh, I'll never forget it. And his big red cheeks and eyes glistening. And I said, the cow. And, and you know, you know, there are people that I have encountered along the way go, hey, a cow. You know, who wants to read a story about a cow? Like a cow. Like if I'd written a novel about a dog, a horse, you know, cats you know, kind of adorable animals, but a cow. And this might be the first novel, at least the only one I know of, that uses a cow as a as a centerpiece. And I, I just got to say, I talked to a writing class this morning at the high school from which I graduated, and I told them, I said, write what you have to write, what you have to write. And so I'm, you know, cows were mine to write about, and... I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I did. And when Pat Conway said, the cow, wow, what affirmation was that? So let's talk about the cow. Uh, Mama Red is okay. not only an actual cow, but she's, uh, uh, she's a cow who played a part. Oh, well, you told us this story, but uh, she is part of the, the, the scene with the weaning is how she played a part in yes. her decision to write the book. But um, yes. tell us about Mama Red the cow. I mean, <laughs> Both the, the real one and the, the literary one. Oh, you know, uh, okay, so the real one I'll just address right now. I was just with her 30 minutes ago. In fact, I went live on Facebook with her. <laughs> because people said, oh, Mama Red, I want to read the cow. So, But Mama Red is a real cow on my daddy's farm where I am right now. She is 25 years old, unheard of, unheard of to be alive still. And it's because I gave her sanctuary, which means that I bought her from my daddy to keep him from sending her uh, off to the cattle sale, which is what happens to mama cows when they reach a certain age. So she is allowed to live, and she is wonderful, and she's my buddy, and I love her to pieces. The literary Mama Red in the novel obviously is named after her and modeled completely after her. Even the description of her modeled face, and her calves, you know, their faces, modeled faces, are exactly the real Mama Red. And so, you know, uh, she is, the, the literary Mama Red in my novel is is exactly the one that you could walk out in the pasture right now and see. I have great admiration for her and uh, for what cows are about. And, you know, I wrote, there's a, you know, there's, Oh my gosh! You mean you have a point of view of a cow in your novel? You know, I have you to say, mind? it takes a lot of guts to write the point of view of a cow, but it works. <laughs> it really works. So, um, oh, well, thank you. How did you, what? What made you decide as a writer to include her own perspective on things? I mean, just she doesn't think exactly, but she experiences stuff. No, and she acts no, as on no, basis of that no. experience. No, and, and back to one of those literary agents. Uh, one of them said to me, to me one time. Your cow talks in your novel, you know, scrunched up face. I said, no, oh, no. Okay, She's so not a Disney cow. I guess a Disney cow. Well, yeah, right. And, and as you've noticed, uh, there's several different points of view in my novel. You oh, know, yeah, there Sarah, are. the main character mm -hmm. has one. Luther, the villain, the antagonist has one. The two little boys, Emerson Bridge, Elsie, and then Ike. Ike Thrasher has. And also I've got, 
the sections that we, we would think of as the Mama Red point of view. So how in the world did I do that? When I write, I think of where does the camera need to go next? And so that's kind of my rotating points of view. And early in very early drafts, I had maybe one or two sections of the Mama Red point of view. And, and by the way, let me say, you know, Mama Red doesn't talk. She doesn't even think. It's, it's, it's what she sees. And it's what she hears. It's very uh, sensory like that. And mm-hmm. when I wrote those sections, uh, Carol and I, it, 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 it kind of felt biblical to me in a way. Uh, incredibly sacred, reverential, maybe might be another good word, but it's different, totally different from when the humans, when I do their points of view. And so the more I wrote, the more drafts I went through, I found that people were really taking to the Mama Red sections. And my very best reader said, Brian, uh, actually this story is about the relationship between two mothers, you know, Sarah, the human mother, and Mama Red. We need to see her more. Could you consider writing even more of those? So when I went back through for the next draft, I put her much more um, front and center stage, which is where the final draft landed. And so I don't know. I'm they're among my favorite sections of the book. I love. I think my my Sarah monologue sections the best to her talking. But I noticed in you were saying one time that you you saw them as a mirror, and um, so I, yeah, I do see them as a mirror. Mm-hmm. Does it seem to be a mirror to you? Yeah, I, that it was did a seem. new idea for mm-hmm. me. Well, in the sense that, um, well, Sarah is learning from her, uh, from what she imagines about her um, and what yes. she sees uh, Mama Red doing. Um, so let's let's talk about it in the context of Sarah, because uh, okay. as delightful as Mama Red is, Sarah is really the main character. I she think. is. She and is. Yes. So. Um, I, I will have read the, the first part of the, I mean, the very, very beginning, uh, where we meet her in July, 1944 and mm-hmm. talk about where she is at that point in her life and who she is and what wow. her concerns are and what draws her to Mama yeah. Red. Well, we will get into it more later as well. We'll get into that. I'll just mm-hmm. say when, who she is when we meet her. Well, Sarah Creamer, when we meet her, <laughs> she's delivering, uh, her best friend and, woman across the garden's baby. Sarah is uh, an overweight uh, woman who feels that she has to be in service to everything. I think she is has a low self-esteem of herself. Um, but Sarah always does the right thing. And even though Maddie is pregnant with, can I say that, her own, uh, Sarah's husband's child. Yeah. Sarah still does the right thing, always steps up, always steps up and actually delivers the baby of, of, of this woman who was cheated on her. And so Sarah is made of, I think, so many good things, yet she can't see them herself. She can't see herself as anything but, I'm not going to say a piece of trash, but her she has incredibly low self-esteem of herself, but we meet her uh, always rising to the occasion, which she does that night, uh, not only to deliver that child, but to ultimately take the child and pick him up. 
Right. And this is, I mean, we find out eventually where all of that low self-esteem is coming from. So I don't want to spoil your plot um, right. for people by giving them right. too much information. But it's right. a really hard decision for her. I mean, she really doesn't believe that she has what it takes to raise a child. And yeah. she's... She's a really interesting, believable woman in the sense that she doesn't she doesn't do a lot of self-analysis, especially in the beginning. She just kind of reacts to things. But she so she doesn't think about what it, I mean, she doesn't really emote about the fact that her husband has cheated on her with this best friend yeah. or vice versa. I mean, it's not clear which of them is the greater betrayal, really. But mm, right. But she does react to the reality that she's now going to have to take care of this child. Right. You know, she doesn't do a lot of thinking. She just keeps moving and marching and doing what she needs to do. That's what she doesn't question a lot of things, does she? She just accepts and moves on and does what she needs to do, which is what she does this one particular night when the, when the novel opens. But, oh, she feels woefully, woefully inadequate as uh, a mother, yet she does the right thing and picks up this child. And so I fell in love. I fell in love with her. You know, when in early drafts, I did not begin with this scene. I don't even remember which one I, I, I began with, but I had this magnificent editor tell me, Bran, Bran, we need to see Sarah's magnificence on the page. I'll create a scene and start thinking about putting her, even though she doesn't know she has it, the reader will know once they see it. And so that's why uh, helped all of this come about, was trying to put Sarah's magnificence so that reader would know on the page. That's a great way of putting it. I think the reason I thought that in some ways she was a mirror of Mama Red is, is that quality in her that she's always putting one foot in front of the other, you know, she... It's not, I mean, she's human, so she does think and she does feel and she does, and we do see her telling her story in different levels. But very, a lot of the book is, it's, it's very compelling because she has this mm. kind of driving force inside her and she, and we see what she experiences and we see um, what her fears are and all of this kind of thing. Mm. But she doesn't do, um, you know, she, she just seems like the, the kind of woman that you would be if, if you would if you were growing up on a farm in the 1950s and and she, as we're about to talk about she's in a very difficult situation financially and yeah um, yes. emotionally and and as things tends to happen in novels things keep getting worse for her right i mean for the first <laughs> oh, yeah half right i mean it's like <laughs> yeah, true so yeah, if only i had yesterday <laughs> yeah, <right>? yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, you know, she, she takes on this baby. Um, her husband is still alive at that point. Um, mm-hmm. and he's actually a very good daddy, although he, he's got some issues as a husband. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> to yes. put it mildly. Um, yes. Uh huh. But he, he really does relate to the baby whose name is Emerson Bridge. And mm-hmm. I have the impression that as long as he's around, that kind of, um, Cement Sarah's feeling that she can't, you know, that she's not the best parent. Right. Exactly. She let him take the lead, and she, like, kind of functioned as a maid, a cook and a maid, and let them, you know, be daddy and, and boy uh, until that world changed and upside down, and, and Harold, uh, and she's forced now to, 
to do it all and dirt poor. I mean, you know, nothing to eat to give a a half a pair for lunch and the other half a pair for, for supper. And that's it. I mean, then the farm's going to be foreclosed on. It just gets dire, dire, and more dire. Mm-hmm. So before we talk about that part of it, what can you tell us about um, Harold without giving too much away? Yeah. Well, he, he can't live with what he's done. That's all there is to it. You know, he's uh, he didn't, when he married Sarah, he didn't love her. He tells her that. And, uh, but nonetheless, they go right ahead. And, um, he has a, a strong conscience. He, he can't live with what he's done, the betrayal that he's done. And so I think he's a, he's, he's not a real manly man, you know, uh, you know, fishing and hunting and all that kind of stuff. I think he's got a real sensitive side to him. And, uh, he got in trouble. He cheated and, no, he can't deal with what he's done. So he can't stay, and he leaves Sarah behind. So that's why he drinks, because he'd be out of shame, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. Out of shame, totally, totally. I mean, he he, he started, he started, you know, when the, Maddie got pregnant, and he, so he, he drinks, and he drinks himself to death. That's all there is to say. Which actually adds to Sarah's problems, because then, I mean, he was already... He'd been fired from his job, and so she wasn't bringing much money in. And, of course, it's the early 50s, so it's not that easy for women to work, even um, though it's not as hard as it was in the 1850s. But she is, right. um, so as you mentioned, she can't even feed this little boy who's now seven, and now she's mm-hmm. got to pay for a funeral, and she's got a mortgage on the mm-hmm. farm, and um, <laughs> she's in really bad shape. So tell us how she copes. All right, how she copes is uh, she begins to... Sell, sell dresses. It's the only skill she has. And when she goes over to the Dobbins household, she learns of a possible salvation for her and her son. And that is something that was called back in the day, the fat cattle show and sell, where it was boys back then, 4-H boys, would get a steer, which is a neutered uh, male cow, at about a year old, something like that. And then what's known as feed them out, fatten them up um, for the big show. And there were big, big bucks that came in at the time. My dad was the grand champion in 1941 here in Anderson, and he got $330, and that's about $5,000 in today's time. So it was big bucks. And so Sarah learns of this and goes, oh, my gosh, this will be wonderful because, A, it would bring in a bunch of money, plus, it would give Emerson Bridge a friend, someone to buddy with. So this is what she perceives as her salvation and sets about uh, entering the show and starting down the road of feeding off the steer with Emerson Bridge. And they don't quite understand what that means in the long run. Oh, they're incredibly naive, incredibly naive. Sarah just thinks you get a steer, you give them a bunch of food, and you take them to the show, and they win, and you get a check, a big check, and all is good. But the novel, of course, is uh, about the lights coming on for both Emerson Bridge and Sarah as to what exactly they've gotten involved with and what the uh, consequences and stakes are. So tell us how uh, Mama Red uh, gets into the story, because she is not a steer. Yeah, she gets into the story because the steer that Sarah gets for Emerson Bridge 
is from the Dobbins back to where she sold that dress. And um, they bring the steer home one day, and the steer is calling for its mom, although Sarah doesn't know who the steer is calling for. These are deep, guttural sounds. And the mother cow actually breaks out of a barbed wire fence on the Dobbins property and comes four miles through the night to find her calf. And she does this from smell, and she does it from sound. And this is based on a true story that really happened where I grew up, where a mother cow did break out to go after her calf. The calf was taken from her at age four months, which is way too early to be weaned. Usually six months is the time. So Mama Red, the mother cow, actually breaks out of the fence and goes and finds her calf, which Sarah the next day uh, <laughs> goes out and notices or, or hears that there are no uh, guttural sounds coming from the yard. And she goes out and sees this calf that she has just brought home nursing a big mother cow. And so that's how they meet. And it's there that Sarah begins to see oh my goodness, this is a real mother here. Look at what she's done. She's come for her baby. And so the mother cow becomes Sarah's teacher, if you will, and how to be a mother and what it means. And they really establish a relationship. I mean, Sarah goes out at night and talks to the cow, and this is how yeah. we as readers find out a lot about her own past. And she's, she really doesn't have anyone close enough no. that she could talk to other than the cow. Other other than the cow, you're exactly right. And she goes out and just spills her soul. It's kind of a, a confessional, I think, a confessional way of looking at it, that she begins to tell her story to Mama Red. And I think the, that's my favorite part of the whole book, those sections. Oh, mine too. Yeah. So how would you characterize their relationship? I mean, do you think of it mostly as a kind of student-teacher thing? Yeah, I do. Student teacher. I certainly do. She views, Sarah views Mama Red as her teacher and is a, you know, it's a very sacred relationship. Uh, it's exactly how I see. I don't even, uh, Sarah doesn't put herself, you can't call them friends because that would be on equal footing. Sarah very much feels subservient and inferior to Mama Red at that point in the novel. So um, one of the other quick characters that you mentioned, then we're going to get back to the Dobbins family because they're crucial, um, okay. is mm-hmm. Ike Thrasher. Who is Ike Thrasher? <laughs> Ike Thrasher. Oh, man. Ike Thrasher is a, a wounded little soul um, who wants to matter, who wants to be authentic, he wants to be loved by his dad. And what's so interesting, when we meet him in the novel, his father's been dead for 25 years. Yet, Ike, who is in his 40s, is still chasing, still chasing his daddy's love. So he enters into the picture um, also with a deep, deep yearning and views this uh, steer. He could grow up to be grand champion, also to, to be some kind of testimony to Ike Thrasher's being a man. If I can be a part of helping to grow a grand champion, then that would then in my in Ike's mind speak to his own masculinity and maybe earn the right to go and step on his father's land. Again, the father's been gone twenty five years, but it's it matters to Ike that much 
that he get his daddy's respect and love, even even from the grave. Yeah, I mean, pretty much every character in this novel has an issue with parenting of some kind. Um, mm-hmm. With Mama Red, mm-hmm. it's a reverse one. She is, she's a, a perfect parent, but she she's being, you know, she's threatened with the loss of her calf, so she comes and finds him. But, you know, Sarah right. has issues with her parents, and Ike has issues with his parents. And, of course, Emerson Bridge has lost his parents, um, or at least yeah. his birth parents. And then and then now we get to the Dobbins family, which is... No, now we get to the Dobbins. Okay. They really yeah, have like issues. A drum roll. A drum roll. Drum roll <laughs> get for ready, the Dobbins. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Okay. Yeah, let's get to them. So the one nice thing that Luther Dobbins does is he allows uh, Sarah to buy Mama Red and keep her with the... Uh, with the calf, although it's even then it's not clear that he has the best motives. But <laughs> right. his wife is actually a very helpful character for Sarah. She mm-hmm. buys Sarah's dresses and she helps her out in various ways. Uh, but Luther is, you know, everybody, every novel must have an antagonist, and Luther is the antagonist. He's a wonderful <laughs> antagonist, actually. Oh, thank you. He was the most fun to write, Carolyn. Oh, they always the are. <laughs> I know, I know, I know you know what I mean. Oh, my God. <laughs> you can let out every bad thing you ever wanted to do. You can. You can just act out. It is so <laughs> wonderful to be that bad on the page, isn't it? It absolutely is. So <laughs> one, <laughs> one of the first things we learn about him is that he has two sons, and they are both named after him. <laughs> <laughs> can you say ego? I think I can say ego, yeah. But uh, <laughs> tell us about him anyway. He has an obsession that rules his life. So what, oh, it, yeah. what is it? Oh, to, gosh. You know, to be, I think at its core, it's to be somebody, to be this respected, revered, you know, uh, major big-time cattleman in all of Anderson County. He has this yearning to be uh, adored, maybe, uh, respected, and and to be this big shot, kind of this big shot, you know, a very rich cattleman is what he wants to be and wants to, like, rule the place and have everybody bow down to him and serve Luther Dobbins. Gosh, he's got deep, deep, deep uh, uh, yearning in, in all of this. And he, he just wants somebody to look at him and to respect him and to know that he is the man. Yeah, that sounds just about right. So, unfortunately for his seven-year-old son, he, one of the ways that he Luther wants to feel adored is by winning this grand championship every year. Yes, yes. And he's had a, an older son, the older one who's also named after him, Charles, who has actually <laughs> done this very well. <laughs> but poor Elsie um, is not oh, having such oh. a good time. No, because see, Charles won every year, every year after, the, I don't know if you noticed or not, but I put my dad in there after the McLean boy won, <laughs> which is true. My dad did win in 1941, and then I just made up the rest of it and had uh, Luther's son, Charles, just win every year after year after year. And then, you know, when they get too old, they age out, and which is what happened to Charles. And now, when, you know, near when the novel opens, they've just had the that cattle show and now the baton if you will has been passed to little lc little precious lc who's not wired at all like charles was and so now it's up to little lc 
to be the man, you know, to win, to keep the string of, uh, of Dobbins' victories going. It's what he's loaded up with. And that's really an awful lot of pressure to put on a seven-year-old. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yet he wants to please his dad. You know, he, he wants his daddy's love. I mean, that's, uh, and we all do. And so he want, he's gonna, you know, wanna please his father and he feels very badly about not being able to, to pull it off, but, you know, wants to please his dad and wants to win and wants to make his daddy proud of him and love him. Oh my. Yeah, but it's a big, big loading up, Carolyn. Yeah, no, I really, I mean, of course he wants to please his dad. I mean, everybody does. It's, as you said with Ike, you know, I mean, 25 years yeah. after Dad's gone, he's still worried about it. 25 years and he's right? in the grave, and he's still he's right. still trying to win for his daddy, yes. And, of course, Luther, in a sense, wants to please his dad as well. I mean, he's kind of, I mean, he, he doesn't treat his family well, but he, he, one of the things I liked about him is that even though he is in many ways a terrible person, you, you do feel, maybe sympathy is too strong a word, but he's not, I mean, he mm. has... There are things that he wants to do. He wants to have a better relationship with his son. He just doesn't know how to make it work. Um, but he has. He wants it. He wants. Yeah. I mean, he time. really wants to be he a good father, and he just, and even a good husband, and he just doesn't seem yeah. to have the. He keeps tripping over himself. Really. Keeps tripping over himself. That's a good way of putting it. But he has a, a big, big want to in him. He just keeps trying to to pull it off. But he's got a big mountain to climb. And, but he had a want to, and that's what kept me going. He's, he is a villain. You know, he does some terrible things, but gosh, you know, when I got to know his inner life and know what he really wanted, and he wants to be loved and he wants to be somebody because he doesn't feel that he is. If he felt that he was, he wouldn't have all of this big shot stuff he had to do. So I really felt for him and I really fell in love with him as I wrote him. One of the things is that he grew up very poor, right? So, I mean, that's oh, part of, of his, um, you know, he's in, in his head, he's still this, this poor little boy who, even though, so he needs constant reinforcement from the outside world that he's, he's actually okay. Yeah, and it's, it's not just poor. Here in the rural South, I mean, with the, the race issue, um, Luther Dobbins is white. And he grew up on a rich white man's farm, yet lived like a tenant farmer, which in the rural South was reserved primarily for the African-American race. So he grew up um, as if he was African-American himself. So it's not just being poor, but it's also kind of being treated like he was uh, not uh, a white guy. And so he's just like double, double barrel loaded on that. And in fact, he he has um, a childhood friend who is black, uh, whom he yeah. also treats badly because you know now that he's mm-hmm. older and he wants to show that he's the master, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His childhood buddy that he grew up beside, you know, works for him, and yes, he also treats him badly. <laughs> so, you know, it. What's really interesting. I think in a novel is, and this is a character question. It's not a plot question. Um, okay, okay. Is how you know protagonists have to grow, right? They have to. Mm-hmm. They have to be basically mm-hmm. good people who have flaws, but ultimately they overcome them. And Sarah does overcome it. She she has been mistreated by her parents, and she 
has very low self-esteem and she inherits this horrible situation and she doesn't think she can be a mother, but she does find a way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Luther yeah. also, I mean, he's, he's in, in many ways a very similar situation, although he's been more successful economically. Um, and yet he can't make that growth, which you know, know. is a characteristic yeah. antagonist too. So part of it is just a, a writing thing, right? But, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's interesting to me is the difference in their characters. What what is the crucial mm. thing that Sarah mm. has in her that Luther mm. just can't muster as much as he would like? Oh, I love this question. Oh, you know, I think it's kind of simple, actually. Sarah is in service to Emerson Bridge. And I I guess I should broaden that umbrella out to say she's in service, period, to everyone in her life. By contrast, Luther expects everyone to be in service to him, his son, to serve him and to make him feel like he's the big shot. I think... um, Luther can't get past himself and his pain, uh, yet Sarah can. And I think the key is because she is in service to something more than herself. I think it, in my way of thinking, boils down to that. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you're right. I mean, it's almost like the difference between empathy and arrogance. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, she, yeah, she reacts so, to other people, right? She sees other people and she totally. tries to do what's best. And even the, you know, Mama Red, she sees her pain and reacts to her pain and, and wants to make it, you know, she wants the mother and calf to stay together and all of this kind of thing. Mm-hmm, yeah. She does, and, but, but uh, Luther expects people to do for him, not putting his, his own life and his own neck on the line like Sarah does every day, every minute of every day. And he also deludes himself. I mean, he's convinced that his older son uh, has just gotten away and and never <laughs> actually shows up in the book, right? I mean, yeah. he's always expected, and yet somehow he always has to be in Virginia or go to Texas or something. I mean, I'm making up the yeah. places because I don't remember it. But it's very clear to the reader <laughs> that Charles doesn't want anything to do with it. No, I mean, he flew the coop. He's bye-bye. But yet, Luther still hangs on to him. I'm thinking of the, the cattleman's dinner scene, where he's got him all this fantasy in his mind about my big-shot boy, you know, who's got a, a scholarship at Clemson College and all this stuff. And, you know, I'll tell you, in early drafts, I did have Charles come home once, and it was that cattleman's dinner. But when I went back through, I thought, no, it's more powerful to have him absent. It makes his makes him even louder. Yeah, and, uh, no, absolutely, no, he, it does. He, and the yeah, thing he's is flown that the coop. He, right, he's flown the coop, and um, it shows how Luther deludes himself. Basically, you know, he mm-hmm. he thinks because he doesn't really see Charles as a person either. Charles is just the oh, yeah. you know, it's it's his face that did well, as distinct from Elsie, <laughs> it's his face that's doing badly. You know, I, I remember yeah. somebody once said to me. You know the prob uh, the problem parent um, tends to fuse. So when the kid does something that they don't like, it's they act like mm. it's their leg that's doing something. You know like how you would feel if oh, your leg yeah. just went off on its own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. You nailed it. Mm. That's true. Yeah. So, so another theme in the novel is, is the human animal bond, and you told us a story about mm. the weaning, but. 
I'm wondering if this is a, a particular interest of yours or whether it just happened oh, to work for totally. this novel. No, totally, totally. I have two loves in life, Carolyn. I have my love of writing and I have my love of animals. Uh, I don't know which one's stronger. I love animals uh, and I love my writing. Uh, no, I think it's perfect that I have this cow in my novel and what we learn. I think they can teach us much. Yeah, what what I do think, you think that they can teach us, other animals? Um, the value of being in the moment, because that's how animals must live. Must live. I uh, I had an animal communicator <laughs> one time want to talk to me and uh, Mama Red, and I said, I want to ask her if she knows that I saved her from what my father was going to do. And the animal communicator says, they live in the now. There is no what if, what could have been. They let all of that go. They're living right now in this moment fully and doing everything they have to do. And I've always kept that in my mind and when I when was with Mama Red a little while ago I, I just yeah they do what has to be done right now and and keep marching and I think we can learn you know a lot a lot from them um, their own instincts for survival they don't hold grudges they they're just in this moment free right now and I I, I, I learn from them every day. I sit, I want to sit in their presence and learn every day. Thank you. That was a really wonderful, insightful answer. Um, well, think, thank you. I think that's as far as we can safely go into the story without giving away too many spoilers. So I'm going to ask okay. my traditional wrap-up question, which is what would you like readers oh. to take away from One Good Mama book? Ooh, what would I like them to take away? I want readers... I don't want it to be a brain thing, a knowledge thing, a mental thing. I would just quite simply, Carolyn, like readers to feel something, to cry, to laugh, to be sad, to be angry. One of the things I want to do as a writer is wake people up, wake people up. And if I could do that and have them feel something, and then through that, perhaps ask themselves a question. If they're parents, what kind of a parent am I? Am I loading up my child? Um, I think would be awesome. I think another thing is, you know, the whole animals, you know, what, uh, what, how do you view, maybe people have told me already, readers have told me that they view cows differently after reading this book. But they didn't before now see them so much as anything other than just, you know, nice to look at there in the field. But to know that they have families and that, uh, what, you know, that they love also and want their babies to live. So I think, uh, feeling, readers to feel, feel something, maybe then ask themselves some questions would be fine with me. Great. Um, well, I'm sure they will because it is, the most beautifully written novel I've read in a long time. So I really, well, uh, thank you. Um, really think people should seek it out and read it. Um, what are you working on now? I understand it involves chickens. Oh, oh chickens. Oh, man, word gets out, huh? <laughs> yes, I'm writing a, a novel that I'm tentatively calling Took that's based on a, a real-life story uh, in South Carolina. There's a 
a big happening in 1950. The federal government ran 3,000 people in little bitty itty farming communities off their land so that uh, government could build a hydrogen bomb plant to go up against the Russians. And so I'd mentioned that I'm a journalist and I'd done some research. I did oral histories with 30-something people from that time. And so I'm now writing a novel that is using as a centerpiece the most dramatic story I heard. And I'm letting that be the prism through which to see the entire story. And so this character, Eula, um, has chickens and baby plop plop. And so she won't have the significance of Mama Red, or at least in this draft, I don't see it now, but she will be important to Eula. And it's a story of uh, Eula's, well, I won't give it away. But anyway, it's based on Eula Bates, who is an extraordinary woman in our history that nobody knows about. All right. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Carolyn, so, so much. I, I, I really appreciate this. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie. And today I've been speaking with Bren McLean about her debut novel, One Good Mama Bone. You can find out more about her at www.brenmclean.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction. Thank you.